0: Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast, where we have in-depth conversations with experts to help navigate wellness and empower all of us to make feasible changes to a healthier life and healthier world. Today, we get to have a conversation with Dr. Aza Gadir, PhD, an expert in immunology who completed her postdoc training at Harvard Medical School. Her published research is focused in immunology and the role of the gut microbiome in protecting against diseases early in life. For this work, she holds issued and pending patents and has collaborated with industry partners to accelerate the discovery of microbiome-related immunotherapies for food allergies. Aza currently serves as the Director of Research and Development at Seed Health. She grew up in London and received her PhD at 26 in immunology from University College London. Hi, Dr. Gadir. Uh, Welcome to our podcast. It's so nice to have you. Yeah, we're so excited to talk to you um, all things immunology and microbiology. Um, So to start off, we just wanted to hear a little bit about your journey and how you got into microbiology research and what your expertise is.
1: So um, um, I started by doing biochemistry as an undergrad um, and kind of fell in love with immunology in my first year um, and so ended up finishing as a biochemistry and immunology uh, dual degree. Um, And then I did my master's in immunology of infectious diseases just because it's um, such a complicated world and, and I wanted to dig in a little bit deep what the immunology of infection was and ended up doing my PhD in lupus and autoimmunity in particular. Um, And so my my PhD project was trying to understand one type of immune mechanism in in patients with lupus compared to healthy controls. Um, And then I moved to Boston uh, for my postdoc, which I did at Boston Children's Hospital and and Harvard Medical School. Um, And while I was there, it was actually complete luck that I ended up working on the microbiome I started working on like the immunology of food allergy um, and project was going really, really well. Um, and at, at one point, my, the, the professor that I was working with had always had an interest in why it was that food allergies were going up so much. And he always thought that there was kind of this environmental microbiome aspect, which was solidified a little bit more when we um, moved our mouse model of food allergy. So we had um, some mice with food allergy that we were working with. Um, And we moved them from one room to the other and then noticed that there were changes in kind of the mechanism of the disease. Um, And that kind of was where the microbiome story and my project emerged from, because we started. um, He he decided that he wanted to go back and kind of tease apart a little bit more whether there was a role for the microbiome. Um, And so... Spoiler alert, There was. And that's what ended up being my postdoc project. And so um, my postdoc ended up being um, kind of understanding the immune basis of, of the microbiome and how immunology, the microbiome together can kind of contribute to diseases like food allergy early in life.
0: Wow, that's such an interesting path. And there's so much to unpack there. Um, so we would like to start with asking just generally, what is a microbiome? There's been a lot of hype around this word. And uh, could you explain to our listeners exactly what it means?
1: So um, the microbiome, the, the, the simple definition of it is that it's, um, the set of genes that code for every single microorganism that lives on or in your body. Um, and so that's trillions of microorganisms. And the word itself can refer to, to, to resident vi- like viruses, bacteria, and also fungi. Um, but n- now in my role at SEED, we primarily work with, the bac- with bacteria. And when we speak about the microbiome, that's what we're mainly referring to. But the term microbiome can refer to any microorganism so that's viruses fungi or bacteria
2: so when you're talking about that how many of these uh bacteria are the good guys and how many are the bad guys
1: yeah it's a good question and so i think what we're starting to learn is that it's not that simple so i think for, for a very very long time um microbiologists had already worked out that we have bacteria that live on and in our bodies and um, for the most part, we always thought that it was, they were common souls, they stayed there um, very passively, they didn't harm us, everything was fine. And, and what we started to understand over time was that if you are in a state of immunosuppression, some of these bacteria that are good guys or don't do anything to you can actually switch and cause some level of harm. So the famous example of this is, is HIV which was when um, um, HIV, the virus itself started to, to spread, especially in New York, the way that we noticed that it was even a thing was that um, there was this um, group of young men that were starting to develop diseases or infections that usually people don't develop. So things like Staph aureus infection and Staph aureus is, is a microorganism. It's a bacteria that sits on your skin and usually doesn't cause any harm. But um, clinicians started to notice that there was this um, increase in infections and and bacterial infections that usually you wouldn't see. And and that's actually the, the phenotype of HIV, which is that it suppresses your immune system. And then you start to notice that there are like bacteria on your skin that are able to now cause infection. And so what that message kind of started to send was that the immune system was actually suppressing the function of these microbes that live in and on us. And so at this point, what we know is that the relationship is, is a lot more synergistic than we previously thought, that these bacteria aren't necessarily just sitting there passively, they actually have a relationship with our immune system and, and I can get into it a little bit more. Um, but that's why it's not an easy question to answer, because I think it's context dependent. And that's the thing with the immune system. It's very context dependent. Um, if it wasn't that complicated, I think uh, bacteria and viruses would have won the war a very long time ago. And so that's why I think it's intentionally a little bit more complicated. And it, and it kind of depends on the situation that you're in. Um, and that will tell you whether a bacteria is a good guy or a bad guy.
0: That's a really great uh, description, And it's also really interesting to think that we have these bacteria and viruses and fungi all over. It isn't just in our gut, which has been um, very much in the news, but it's all over in our skin, in our mouths. Um, so that's really fascinating. So
1: I was going to say the thing that's also kind of a little bit cool is that there are like certain sites in the body or organs that we always thought were sterile or immune privileged, like like the brain, for example. For a very long time, we thought that there are no immune cells in there and there's definitely no bacteria in there. And I think now we know that's not true. We know that there is an immune system in the brain. And I think... Um, what Like, it's, it's a contentious area still, but I think there are, there are groups now starting to work out whether there is a brain microbiome. So, like, to what you are saying, that even sites that you wouldn't expect there to be resident microbial communities, we're starting to think that maybe that might not be the case. And the research is still early, but it's promising.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, the uh, the gut-brain access, I've heard before. <laughs> um, another term that's been used a lot recently is just immunology or the immune system, um, especially with the whole situation in 2020 and the, the COVID outbreak. Um, could you describe a little bit what is immunology?
1: So um, immunology is, um, the, is the study of the immune system. And the immune system is kind of this network or this system that you have to protect you against disease. And that's a very very simple explanation. Um, But the way that you can kind of view it is that there are two arms of the immune system. You have the innate immune system and you have the adaptive immune system. And so the innate immune system is, is the, the, the immune response where, say, that you cut your skin and you get an infection, right? The innate immune system are the first cells that are like on the scene. And they tend to be a little bit less refined, a little bit sluggish, or like, I don't know if that's all immunologists mean, would agree with me there. But these are kind of the, the less specialized cells that just recognize there's an infection, I must go and fight. And so they usually go and they'll fight, fight, fight and clear the infection. And the innate immune response is incredibly effective. Because if you think about it, you're exposed to so many offenses daily by eating, by walking around, by opening your eyes. Like there are, there's so many different ways that um, pathogenic bacteria can get into your system. And your, your innate immune system is always the first on the scene and it will clear the infection. Now, in cases where the innate immune system is overwhelmed or it's not able to fight the infection, um, what you then have is inflammation. Um, and then you also get recruitment of the adaptive immune system and the adaptive immune system are kind of like your B cells and your T cells. So these are the cells that come along and they're kind of the, the, they're the heavy artillery. And so they'll take a couple of days to be activated. But once they're activated, they usually show up and they'll like nuke the area is the way that, that we we think of them. And so in general, I think it, it, it does get more complicated than that, but you can think of the immune system as like innate immune responses, which are immediate and then adaptive immune responses that are a little bit more specialized.
2: So cool. Can you can you explain a little bit about um, memory with the adaptive immune system?
1: So um, that's one of the coolest things about the adaptive immune response is that when, um, when these T cells and these B cells are recruited, right? So when you have the innate immune cells, that are like fighting this infection and then they'll take a little bit when, when they're overwhelmed they'll take a little bit of that infection and then they'll rush to the lymph nodes and they'll say to the t and b cells hey guys we really really need some help here and so what you have is that the t your, your adaptive immune response will then look at that thing that's presented to it and it'll really try to like form a very specialized focused response to that thing and so what you have is that you have. Antigen specificity is something that you'll hear a lot thrown around with with SARS-CoV-2 or with COVID is that you'll get like a virus specific response or a bacteria specific response. And so what that means is that the T cells and and adaptive cells that are then recruited are specific to that thing. So when they rush out, they're not just throwing out proteins and trying to just like kill the thing that they know they're going directly to that thing and they're trying to engulf it and get rid of it. And they know exactly what they're dealing with. And the the cool thing that that you were asking about, which was memory, is that these T and B cells will then mount these responses, these memory responses that will linger in the system after the infection is cleared. And they'll they'll hide in your system. For example, in the bone marrow is where you get the antibody producing cells that will hide. And in future, if you're ever re-offended by that infection or by that pathogen, your body doesn't even need to wait for that whole response to happen again. The adaptive response is already there and it's waiting. And that's what we call memory is when the body remembers something after it's already cleared and and knows how to clear it way quicker than the first time that it saw it.
0: That's so cool. Our body is so amazing. (laughs) Um, And so going back to what you were talking about a little bit earlier in food allergies, uh, why do we, why do you think we have so many food allergies nowadays?
1: So, um I know it's something that we hear a lot of people say that like oh food allergies are going up but they are actually they are actually going up and I think um there are a, a bunch of reasons for it there's definitely a genetic aspect but um I think what's most interesting is this microbiome story obviously I'm biased but it's it's and I can tell you a little bit about the work that that, that we did to kind of and see if you have any questions there. So where the story kind of started in in my group was that, Um, The professor that I was working with at the time, Talal Shatila, decided that he um, wanted to go into the clinic um, and he he went to the clinic and collected fecal matter um, with a clinician called Reema Rashid at, at Boston Children's. And they decided that the best way to even try to work out if there was a microbiome connection to food allergies was to take fecal matter from children every six months from the moment that they're born and comp- and see retrospectively who pro- who's going to develop food allergies to see whether there was a microbial signature or any bacteria that they could find in the food allergic children that, for example, the healthy children didn't have. And, and the reason why it was retrospective is because most children only develop food allergies when they start eating solids. So that's like around the age of one, I think. I don't have children, I think it's around one. Um, And And so- Describe describe a little bit, uh, bit, uh, what what is retrospective? Yeah, so, so after they collected the data, they then analyzed backwards. So I'll tell you what they did. So they took a bunch of children, Um, And they, over 300 children, and they collected fecal matter every six months from when they were born up to the age of three. And then they analyzed that fecal matter. And what they found, uh, so retrospectively means that they analyzed at the age, they weren't analyzing as they were going along, they analyzed backwards. And what they found at that stage was that the children that went on to develop food allergies had a very distinctive microbial signature that healthy children didn't have. So that means that they had a t- like it was pretty consistent that you could see some bacteria that they were missing compared to the healthy control children um, or, or some bacteria that were a little bit higher. And so what we then did was that we decided just to kind of kick off the project that we would do a fecal transplant. So we would take um the okay fecal matter so poop from from food allergic children and poop from healthy children and give them to mice just to see what will happen and and what we found was that if you take food, mice with food allergy and you give them poop from healthy children you actually see food the food allergic responses completely inhibited so that kind of told us that there was something in the in the poop of healthy children that food allergic children didn't have that had some type, that had something in it that might have been um, inhibitory or like was able to treat food allergy so what we then did as the next step of the project was that we decided to make cocktails of bacteria so kind of like probiotic mixtures of bacteria based based on the clinical data And so we made um, cocktails of bacteria with bacteria that healthy children had, that food allergic children didn't have. And what we found in the project was that if you take that bacteria, the healthy bacteria, and put it into food allergic mice, you see food allergic responses completely inhibited. So I will note that this is all mouse work, and there are a lot of groups that are currently working on this. And there's actually one company that's already in the clinic. But they're now starting to test whether you can actually inhibit food allergic responses with bacteria. Um, And just the last thing to add here was that as part of the project that we were doing and and the paper that we published, what we actually found was that when you're born, you're introduced to bacteria, either through like delivery, um, through childbirth um, or through like interactions early in life. And actually, these bacteria help prime your immune system or they teach your immune system to tolerate a lot of different kind of foods and a lot of different um, environmental factors. And so what we found was that there are certain bacteria that are important for babies to see early in life and could then protect them from food allergy. And babies that don't see that bacteria are more prone to developing food allergies. So that's where the story is at the moment. I mean, it's still early, but I think this is really promising because in answer to your question of why it is that we're maybe seeing more food allergies now than we were previously seeing is that we are seeing more sanitation so we're using more air conditioners we're using we're bleaching more we're cleaning more and what we're actually finding is that um, as we're getting cleaner as a society we're actually eliminating some bacteria that might be important for keeping us healthy um, and so that's the hypothesis that a lot of people are working with, um, is that food allergies and eczema and things like asthma in children are emerging because we're getting cleaner because we're missing these microbes that are important for preventing these types of diseases.
0: Wow, so you were saying that there's two ways that you can be exposed to this bacteria when you're young, either through delivery, so that's through the, your mother's vaginal uh, microbiome, and then, or just being exposed to bacteria when you're playing around in the dirt as a little kid. Um, has there been any research to show that they're pretty comparable? Um, because I know that there's a lot of people who are b- born C-section now. Um, is it okay if you just expose your kid to a, like a little bit of dirt or has there been any studies on that? So this
1: is a, this is um, an area that is still early and it's a little bit um, contentious only because, um, the techniques that we have to analyze this type of stuff can be a little bit hard. So I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. So there have been lots of studies that have connected um, birth through C-section, because if you think about it, when you're born cesarean, you're born sterile because it's, it's surgery, right? Everything's sprayed and you're coming out through the skin. And so there have been studies um, that have shown that children that are born C-section, actually the, the first microbiome that seeds in their airway and, and um, in their system and in their gut resembles that more of the skin because they're exposed to the mother's skin on the way out. However, children that are born by vaginal canal are exposed to different um, bacteria in the vaginal canal on their way out. So they have a very different microbiome than kids that are born C-section. The reason why the data has been a little bit conflicting is because some people have found that children will still level out. So that it that, that, um, that bacteria signature that you see in both groups can actually level out over time. Other people have actually connected breastfeeding to it as well. They found that children that are breastfed tend to have um, like stronger immune systems or like are less likely to develop things like food allergies. But I think in general, the truth of it is that it's probably a combination of factors. It's probably um, that there are multiple checkpoints that, like, you can expose kids to, to microbes that are, if they're not exposed in the vaginal canal, you can expose through breastfeeding. If you can't expose through breastfeeding, there are other ways that you can expose them to those bacteria. And I think we're still working out exactly the circumstance in which bacteria. But I, I would say that I think it's multiple checkpoints. Um, it's not just one thing. It's it's probably, like, multiple checkpoints that these children aren't seeing those bacteria.
2: And between these checkpoints, is your microbiome composition, is that changing by the day, by the hour?
1: Um, so by the time that you're a child, your, your gut microbes are, are pretty resilient. Um, so the communities that you're seeing um, are pretty resilient. They do change a lot early in life, especially in that early window um, of birth, like right after birth. You can see these shifts. But I think that what what's really exciting is we're going into this kind of golden era a little bit, um, of starting to understand that it's not just the types of bacteria that are important. So it's not just important what the names of the bacteria are. So for, for example, you've had words like lactobacillus or bifidobacteria, and, and it's important to know what they are, but that's not just where the story is. It's also important to know what these bacteria do. And now our techniques are getting better where we can actually start to understand, um, that just because you have a stable community or you see these specific bacteria for years and years, that's really exciting. But what we need to know is that are these bacteria maintaining the same function over those years? And I think that's, that's something that we're still trying to work out and we don't have um, a clear answer to.
0: So it's good to hear that there's multiple ways that you can be exposed um, to bacteria in early childhood and that if you're C-section, there's many other ways that you can be exposed to um, other flora and uh, microbes and so what um, role do probiotics have?
1: So um, probiotics have been around for for quite a while Um, and so there are multiple ways that you can augment your microbiome even as an adult, adult, right? So you can change your microbiome through diet, through lifestyle changes, Um, but what other something else that you can do to change the, the function of your microbiome is by in, potentially ingesting microbes or ingesting kind of um therapies that can change your microbiome intention intentionally and so um probiotics are the the pure definition of them is that they are microbes that when they're delivered in very particular amount are, are able to confer a health benefit to the host and so what I mean by that is that For something to be a probiotic, you have to have shown that the bacteria strain that you're putting in is a type of bacteria that's already been proven whether in mouse studies or in actual clinical studies to have had an actual benefit on the host compared to like a placebo group or a control group. And so um, it's it's a term I will say that is misused a lot. You'll see things all the time that, that claim to be probiotics. Um, and the, the two questions to ask yourself when you're thinking about uh, buying a probiotic or even thinking about any probiotic is that, A, is that probiotic um, able to survive stomach acid? So has the company or has the delivery method solved for exposure to stomach acid? Because stomach acid will wipe everything out. And so you need a probiotic that's thought about that delivery. But you also need to pick strains that have been shown in research to have actual clinical benefit because not all probiotics are, are, are equal.
2: So what you're saying is most probiotics will be, uh, I mean, the bacteria will be destroyed before they even get to the colon or to the small, yeah,
1: to the small intestine. Exactly.
2: So I know seed has been working on a lot of this and seed is such a cool company that we've been fascinated and following for a while now. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you guys do and what makes you guys different?
1: So, um, um, at the very base of it, we're a microbiome company. So we're interested in all things microbiome. Um, we have both kind of a consumer arm to the company and a, and a therapeutics arm, but I think we're, we're mainly known for our, for our consumer arm. Um, so we have a probiotic on the market. Obviously I'm biased, but um, I, um, I think we've put a lot of work on our team to make sure that the research and the science is, is driving um, any of our products. Um, We have kind of a delivery method, so we know that that our products, and and we're testing clinically currently, and we've already tested in the lab, but we know that our products open up in the small intestine, so they're surviving stomach acid, they open up in the small intestine, and then you're getting delivery of the microbes all the way into the colon. Um, We have 24 strains, so we picked our bacteria um, very carefully, and and please check out, like if anyone's listening and wants to check out our website or has any specific uh, questions about the microbes we've selected, um, but we've select, we have strains in our uh, probiotic, for example, strains that have been shown to clear, um, to, to keep skin clear, for example, and these are all um, clinical studies that were done with placebo. We also have a strain, which is actually probably my favorite, um, that is able to um, mod- modulate the liver and bile axis. So, so what, you, what we've, we've shown, and we're kind of still trying to tease apart the mechanism right now, um is that this strain is able to lower um, LDL, so that's bad cholesterol, by kind of modulating the liver um, the liver bile axis. Um, And we also have strains in there that we know modulate the immune system, which is definitely what what I'm most interested in. Um, But so as a company, we do have consumer products like probiotics, but we also do a lot of research. We have an environmental arm of the company where we actually have a honeybee for a a probiotic for honeybees. Um, And that's kind of an arm of our company that we've been researching pretty heavily to try to understand the environmental application of microbes, not just human application.
0: Wow. I really like that um, your product is based off of very hard science um, and you have a lot of PhDs and MDs on your, on your team working um, to make these probiotics and make sure that uh, they really do have benefit to us. Um, and so what role do prebiotics have and does seed have any role in creating prebiotics?
1: So um, prebiotics are another way that you can augment uh, your, your microbiome. Um, so prebiotics, are, to put it very simply, kind of foods or fibers or things that you can feed your, your gut that will change different bacteria because different bacteria like to thrive on kind of different conditions and, and different nutritional sources. And so one thing that you can do is to change different levels of bacteria in your gut. You can take a prebiotic as opposed to a probiotic. Um, and so, um, for seed in particular our consumer product is actually a symbiotic so it has um a prebiotic in there alongside the probiotic to kind of um help your gut and also help the function of the microbes that we're introducing um and i think one thing to mention here is that one very common misconception with probiotics and and in general is that they have to colonize and that's something that we know isn't always the case um We, probiotics in general do not always colonize. You won't always take a a probiotic and then see it like nest and be happy and find its home in the gut. Um, A lot of the time what you'll find is that these probiotics are kind of dropping off um, things like metabolites and proteins that they're producing as they're going through your system. And that's how they're modulating things like the intestinal barrier, for example. So, so reducing things like if you, you're, you have a bit of constipation or a bit of diarrhea, probiotics can kind of drop off certain sources that will help, help modulate that. And so prebiotics are basically just another way to augment your microbiome. And for seed, we have a symbiotic. So it's a pre and a pro together.
2: So cool. What are, what are some of the prebiotics that you recommend or, or that are most studied?
1: Yeah, so there, there are a lot. So, so our product in particular has pu- allergens, which is from pomegranate in it. Um, there are lots of different fiber sources that you can use. Um, I think there's oligosaccharides are ones that you'll find very common. Um, but I think I know that the science can be very overwhelming. But I think, in general, our mantra at seed is that um, regardless of what you're taking, whether it's even a supplement that the, or a prebiotic or a probiotic, the best thing to do, if possible, um, is to go online and see if you can find clinical research or if, if you can find research. And if in doubt, reach out to the companies themselves and just say, um, you have this prebiotic, can you send me any of the research that you have or you've done to show that this is actually doing something to my body in the amounts that you have? Um, I'll tell you if the companies don't respond, it it often means that they don't have that research because if they have it, they'll, you know, it's a lot of work. So you'll put it on your website or you'll be happy to share it. Um, But I think in general, um, if you are interested in taking a prebiotic or a probiotic, just always hold the companies accountable, including us and and send an email and just say, I want to know what the research is just so that you can validate that you're taking something and you're not taking something that, hasn't been kind of made with with real scientific rigor.
0: That's really good advice because especially now with all the advertising, it's it's really hard to navigate exactly what probiotic you should be taking and if there's anything to back it up.
1: And I think that like one thing that's a little bit, um, I'll say as an immunologist can be a little bit of a frustration um, is that you'll often see this term, immune boosting. Um, You'll see it everywhere and you'll see it related to a lot of supplements and a lot of um, um, kind of even foods. It's like these immune boosting foods. And I think one thing um, that I would personally really like to stress here is that um, it's a little bit of a lazy, lazy term because essentially you can have different arms of the immune system. Right. So to go back to our like when we were talking about the immunology and immune system, you have infection and so you'll get an infection and the body will fight that infection it'll fight 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 clear it but at that point the body needs to signal to the rest of the immune system hey this thing has now left the body stop fighting it's done and what you'll often find with conditions that are autoimmune in nature so when the autoimmune meaning when the body's attacking itself um, is that the immune system continues to fight and it's fighting like an invisible or it's fighting something that you that's that's host tissue that it shouldn't be fighting, um, and so you have this other arm of the immune system where it's overly activated, and your immune system is keeping that in check. And these are diseases, so things like um, lupus, for example, or rheumatoid arthritis, or these disease, MS, diseases that are typically the body attacking itself. So anybody that has any of these diseases will tell you that they don't want a boosted immune system because their immune system is already overactivated. So I think that it's a term that's commonly misused, and people use use it to mean strengthen your immune system. Um, but I, ju- I would just... Um, like to kind of plant the seed of like when you see um the word immune boosting to think to yourself what arm of the immune system am I trying to boost and why um and so I think that like it's often like misused and and that's something that um we see a lot related to kind of supplements and probiotics as well where you'll see a lot of things that say boost your immune system um, but that's not actually what they mean at all and in fact it's kind of slight misinformation because then it's making people with boosted immune systems think oh I can't take this thing it's not for me
0: um, so what do you f- uh, think about probiotic foods like there's there's a lot of uh, foods in the media like sauerkraut, kimchi, yogurt that claim to have probiotic benefits. Um, is there any research on that and do they confer some uh, benefit to our microbiome? Yeah.
1: So there's a lot of research around fermented foods in general. Um, that there's there's a lot of research showing that fermented foods are able to like improve health that have actually have health benefits i will say that not all of them are known to actually be probiotics in particular keeping in mind what the definition that we said earlier which is that probiotics have to be alive um when they're administered so when when you're consuming them um there isn't So with a lot of fermented foods, um, so with things like kimchi, um, with things like kombucha, for example, we know that there's bacteria in there and that there's, there's microorganism elements in there. But again, like any brand needs to show that their specific product is a probiotic. So they have to show that that kombucha, when it's in being consumed by you or that kimchi when it's being consumed by you has organisms that are surviving into your system. And so that's where the definition gets a bit ropey in terms of of defining them as probiotics. Um, however, there is a lot of research to show that, um, there's a lot of nutrition, nutritional benefits to fermentable foods. So like, absolutely there's research out there to show that they can, um, some of them can improve intestinal barrier, but, but, um, it would just depend on the exact type that you're consuming. There's, there's not, unfortunately not just one, um, type that you could say, like you can't say that all kimchi's are good for you. It just depends on the type and how it's made.
0: Are there any other foods besides fermented food that uh, contain probiotics?
1: Um, yes, but but I, it would depend on the brand, whether they've shown that their food is a, is a probiotic. I mean, I'm trying to think, and I know that everything that I'm thinking of is fermented. So things like beer, for example, anything that you grow for a mother where you know that there's fermentation happening in the process, I think these are the ones that spring to mind. Um, but anything else, I think you'd have to... Um, other than probiotics, you'd have to check the brand and check how they'd shown that that um, they had live bacteria.
0: Is there no benefit from uh,
1: not live bacteria?
2: Are most probiotics freeze dried, or is that?
1: Yeah, so they can be, but they they a lot of probiotics are freeze dried. Um, but again, when when they um, uh, however they're, they're able to survive in the system. I mean, once the capsule opens up and they interact with certain enzymes in your in your system. Um, that's a very, very good question, because um, this is something that me and a colleague of mine talk about a lot, um, about whether bacteria even have to be alive. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of data on um, heat-killed bacteria, actually, um, being able to still confer benefit. Because if you remember what we were saying before, that probiotics can drop stuff off. Um, as long as you, sh- if, if they're making a specific type of protein that you need, for example, or that's good for you, um, the bacteria technically don't need to be alive and metabolizing and producing that thing. Um, but what a lot of companies are doing is that they're taking that protein, if, uh, like that one protein, for example, and then commercializing that into a product for benefit, as opposed to trying to keep the bacteria alive. So. Um, there are definitely, there are definitely some bacteria that do not have to be alive to confer particular benefit. So yes, is the answer to your question, but just in regards to calling them probiotics, they have to be alive to be a probiotic.
2: So as the research keeps accelerating with the microbiome and probiotics, um, do you, and the American diet not being the greatest, where do you see just the future of our American diet? Do you see every in the future, everybody taking a probiotic and everybody introducing these foods? into our normal day-to-day routine?
1: So I think probiotics are are good if you just wanna regulate and you wanna modulate your gut. And I think that now there's um, some data um, to show that other types of bacteria. So probiotics are typically bifidobacteria or lactobacillus. So these two in particular tend to be probiotics. When you're looking at other bacteria that we're now starting to discover that are not these two types, Um, But also have have health benefits as we start to understand that there are other types of bacteria, um, that probiotics may start to be regularly used in the household or they might start to actually as we start to prove that they have very specific health benefits, they'll start to be maybe even prescribed in future. But I do think that the kind of future of health. Um, And one thing I really like about the microbiome is that a lot of people just don't realize how important these microbes are, right? So everybody knows that the immune system is important, even if there might not be complete understanding of it. Um, But what's the coolest is that now we're starting to understand that this network of microbes that you have all over you are very active and they're communicating with your immune system, right? So they're telling your immune system to like... um, produce more of this type of vitamin, for example, or produce less of this. So it's a very active process that's happening, communication between the two. And so I just think the future of, of the American diet is to start to think more about these microbes and to think more about um, their presence. And um, to, to, as you're thinking about foods to put in your body and think about certain foods that may not be as good for you as others or foods that don't make you feel good, um, I think the future of the American diet is just going to be a little bit more personalized and it's going to be less one size fits all. And each person is trying to understand and learn more about the things that work for them and the things that don't work for them to be able to like know what things to leave out and what things to, to try to incorporate more of. But um, I do think that we are starting to understand that a lot of the sterile practices that we have might be causing more um, detriment long term um, than we previously appreciated.
0: Uh, so, besides um, being a benefit to the immune system, what other health benefits does the microbiome have?
1: Yeah, so there are microbes. So, there are microbes that we know in, are in your body. And um, I, I can be specific here. There's a type of microbe that we know produces vitamin B12, for example. And so, instead of, and pe- a lot of people will supplement with, with um, they'll go and take vitamin B12 as a supplement, but you actually could just. Um, kind of nurture that type of bacteria a little bit more and it will produce it for you naturally. Um, there are folate producing bacteria. So a lot of people supplement with folates. Um, I mean, I'll, I won't go back and talk about all the amazing things that the microbes do with our immune system. Um, but, but another part that, that I think is particularly interesting as well is this whole question of, um, uh, the gut-brain axis. So it's still, the research is still very early, but we know that you have GABA receptors, you have receptors for serotonin that sit in your gut. So we know that the things that you're eating are related to your kind of gut microbiome, and that's also related to things like mood. Um, again, the research is early, so exactly what things that you can take to augment your mood directly and, and um, augment your gut microbiome to impact your mood, we're still kind of teasing apart and working out. Um, but it's a really interesting area of research. So I think um, this is one thing that is very cool about the microbiome is all the different ways that they are involved very actively in our system, um, and they're definitely not passive bystanders. What,
2: just really quick, what is the simplest way if you, you know, if you were comparing um, or looking at, you know, some type of mental illness, how do you actually measure or quantify someone's bacteria or their microbiome? Yeah.
1: So this is um, a good question because. The typically the most microbiome research. So, okay, to go back just a tiny amount. So what I was saying before was that for years, we've always known that these microbes sit on and in our bodies, right? Um, but it's only kind of in the last probably decade or so um, that clinicians, immunologists, etc., have also had a seat at this microbiome table and have been able to now say, if we take these microbes and put them back into the immune system, how do they impact uh, human disease? and how do they impact the development of disease, right? When you kind of had these kind of immunologists and people who understood human disease at the table, the only measure that we've had to understand the role of the microbiome in disease is to collect fecal matter. So you collect poop from people because poop is a snapshot of what's going on in the gut. Um, ideally, we could have a camera in there or another way of being able to detect what's going on in real time, but we don't have those techniques yet. And so, um, we definitely didn't have those techniques 10 years ago. And so the way to do it is that. For example, you have a lot of um, research that's been done with autism or with um, depression, for example, where they'll take fecal matter from somebody who has um, depression and uh, fecal matter from someone who doesn't, and then you compare to see what's happening in this person's gut that's not happening in that person's. And you can also do time course experiments where you take the same person and as they're going through flares of depression, for example, look at what's going on in their fecal matter and with their bacteria. So... That's actually been the main way that we've made a lot of these findings. And with things like mental illness, it's, it's the main way that we're able to make these findings is collect fecal matter or collect urine for metabolites. So these are the things that the bacteria are producing. Um, and so you collect um, fecal matter and you collect urine and then you analyze the, the microbes in fecal matter and you analyze the metabolites that are in urine to try to understand what's happening. But hopefully the techniques will get way better and we can make uh, much better findings.
2: That's so cool. It's like it could radically transform just the way that we look at our health and the way that clinicians practice. Um, yeah,
1: that's what I, I think, yeah.
2: <laughs> but we just wanted to talk about antibiotics and like kill, trying to kill the bad bugs and what kind of effects that has on our microbiome as a whole.
1: So the hard thing about antibiotics is that they are they are they have been amazing, right? So like because of antibiotics, we um, have literally seen it, it, Like diseases completely eliminated and um they're necessary to take but the problem with them is that if you have for example a urinary tract infection um and you have an e-coli driven urinary tract infection and you're trying to get rid of that e-coli you take antibiotics and essentially antibiotics just go in and nuke the whole area, right? So they take out the E. coli and they take out everything else in the vicinity or a lot of other things in the vicinity. Some of them are a little bit more specific. Um, and so there's a big area of research is trying to understand how you can get rid of the bad bugs without impacting the good bugs on the way. Um, and that's why a lot of people will say to you that like they'll take antibiotics and they'll see other diseases emerge, right? Like, or they'll see you take, you take an antibiotic antibiotic for urine retract infection and then you'll get like a type another type of infection emerge that you then have to treat and so um, the thing about antibiotics is that they're necessary to take but the field still has a long way to go in terms of trying to understand how we can make antibiotics more specific or another approach that that some people take is that you take probiotics alongside antibiotics to, to help mitigate some of the effects of the of the antibiotics and there's some clinical data right now that's being generated so some clinical trials that are being done to to understand and, and we actually are running two of our own trials to start to understand the ways that probiotics can help mitigate the effects of the antibiotics. So to, to, when you get the antibiotics create, nuking the area and creating this kind of open space in the forest, instead of having, having them the same bad bacteria reattach and cause the same disease, to try and populate that area with other microbes or try to push other microbes to grow in those areas to prevent the bad bugs from- So
0: antibiotics are very important to take and a lot of times really necessary. Uh, what would you do specifically after taking a course of antibiotics? Uh, I know that you mentioned probiotics. Should you be taking that alongside the antibiotic or afterwards? And um, how long should you be taking a probiotic afterwards?
1: If you the thing, the reason why you can't take antibiotics and probiotics at the same time is because the antibiotics will just wipe out the pro um, in your system, um, and I think um the best thing to do and i think what a lot of what some doctors recommend if you're prone to side effects um is that they'll say take um a antibiotic in the morning um and then take the probiotic in the evening um a lot of a lot of people i mean because you have to finish the course of antibiotics a lot of people will say to take the probiotic after the antibiotic we're actually running a trial at the moment to try to understand if there is um a way or uh, try to understand how how to do this um, but I would say that me personally, I, I will do if I have to take antibiotics, I'll do one like in the morning and do the pro, pro in, the, in the afternoon. But the research hasn't really established exactly what the best course is yet.
2: Aside from taking antibiotics, is there a best time to take a probiotic?
1: So we recommend for hours actually to take on an empty stomach first thing in the morning. Um, so I usually take, that's when I take um, probiotics. Um, But I think honestly, the the general advice I'd give is is do what works for you best. If your belly aches taking one in the morning, then take one in the afternoon after a meal. Um, But this is kind of, I think, um, where I would say like do the thing that works best for you. Um, I think taking them in the morning on an empty stomach just maximizes their efficiency. Um, But again, whatever works best.
2: I, I was taking mine with hot coffee and I realized that's probably not a good idea.
1: I actually, do, I actually, I actually do that too. So I hope
2: not. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking like maybe, maybe the heat will do something to the capsule, but who knows, um, cool. So we don't really provide where we don't provide medical advice, um, but just based on your research and I mean, everything that you know about the crazy complex fields of immunology, biochemistry and the microbiome, um, is there anything that you do in your own life to just boost your own immune system, keep your microbiome healthy? Um, we kind of just want to get some advice from you in that end.
1: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say that, you know, the stereotypical get lots of sleep, uh, get lots of rest is an important one. And eat well, um, whatever that looks like to you. But just eat well. And, and I think um, I grew up suffering from a lot of kind of mild GI, GI issues and, and learned to kind of just listen to what works for me and what doesn't. And so I would say to try to be intuitive and and not like in a corny way to be like, listen to your body, but like um, if you're- But listen to your body. But listen to your body, (laughs) exactly.
2: Your microbiome are trying to say something. No,
1: like if if you're, I don't know, like for me, processed foods don't work well for me. And I don't know whether I have an intolerance to a preservative or whatever, but I know they don't work for me. And so I try to be very mindful to like stay away a little bit from them. Um, if I want to indulge sometimes, I'll indulge, fine, whatever. But in general, I just think like to be intuitive and to try to stay away from things that make you feel a little bit icky. Probably that's a sign. Um, and and yeah, eat more of what makes you feel good.
0: It's always the the tagline of sleep better and sleep more, but that is so important. And a lot of us don't sleep enough.
1: I think also I have like, this is a little bit of a like nerdy tangent, but there's like a lot of very cool data that has come out on circadian rhythms and sleeping in the microbiome in particular. Um, and there's this um, very famous group, like Microbiome Group. It's Erin it's Elenov's group that have done these studies where they looked at the impact of, of like people who have, to, um, who have jobs where they have to stay up all night, for example, or if like the impact of jet lag on the microbiome. And you really do see that it has an impact. Like the time of day that you eat, um, if you're someone who... Um, suddenly goes from working during the day to like having to eat in the middle of the night because your, your work shift has changed. Um, they have actually some research um, showing that, and I'm, I'm happy to share, but that they have this research showing that if you change when you eat, um, it can actually impact your microbiome. It kind of throws it a little bit into disarray. Um, so, so after reading that study, I actually stopped um, when I'm flying long haul. I stopped eating on the flight, like I'll try and keep my, my meals um, and then like wean myself into more. And this is just me kind of like reading the study. That's not what they were, they didn't say for everybody to go do this, but I literally was just like, oh my God, like actually sleeping is so important in terms of like health because of, it impacts your your microbes. And so like, yeah, keep it in mind when you're eating and when you're sleeping.
0: That's super interesting. So do you eat at different, have you changed the schedule of when you eat during your day regularly, not just on the the flights?
1: I I actually haven't. I haven't changed. Like I have dinner at the same time and breakfast at the same time and lunch too. But um, it's just mainly when I'm traveling. I just try to be very mindful of like not try, not gorging in like the middle of the night in my normal routine. Um, yeah. Because that might be... So you it.
0: Don't, don't late night snack? <laughs> when I'm traveling, I, I try not to.
1: <laughs> so is that...
2: I, you had briefly mentioned before um, about the brain microbiome and a lot of the immune system that's in our brain. So a lot of that circadian rhythm stuff, is that having to do with that part of your immune system working overtime at night to clean stuff out or
1: I mean potentially the research is still so early that I don't I don't say that we, we I don't think we have an answer to that, but I don't think it would be surprising if research starts to emerge that shows that there is a connection between gut-brain circadian and microbiome especially with all the like circadian rhythm microbiome studies that have been coming out i don't think that that would be surprising at all so that's something that i will definitely keep an eye out for
2: and we ask every guest to finish this sentence and we're going to ask you to finish it um the future is blank
1: um so i i get biased but i i was gonna say the future is immunology um I think that um, I was gonna say that it's immunology and it's also precision, right? So it's, I think that this one size fits all approach in general to medicine is something that medicine is itself is kind of turning on its heels because we understand that to, to diagnose and treat huge numbers of the population that has to, to some degree be a one size fits all approach, um, but that that doesn't work for everybody. And I think that with techniques, Um, getting better and with like digital apps, for example, and people being able to like track for them. I think clinicians have gotten better at also like tailoring treatment to people. Um, and so I think that the future is, is immunology and that like everybody's immune systems are different and everybody responds to things different. And so um, all to say that, that we're gonna start to learn a lot more about the immune system in, in the coming few years, especially with what's going on with COVID. And I think people will understand more um, what the immune system means and how, um, how to keep it in mind day to day in a very like person specific way. So yeah.
0: That's a great answer. Um well this has been a really wonderful conversation. Uh you have so much information and it was really really interesting talking to you. Um so thank you for being on our podcast and um
2: yeah. Thank you so much. We could ask you questions all day long and the the fields that you study, I mean we've briefly studied immunology and biochemistry and things like that and they are the hardest fields to study. So uh, well, I, I
1: mean, one thing. First of all, thank you so much for listening. I feel like when you're in the lab for years and years, you get all this like pent up information that you're like, somebody's interested in listening to me, blah. Um, um, but I will say that originally, I thought I wanted to go into dental school, and I actually had an offer for dental school. And the way that I fell into like biochemistry and immunology was because. Um, everybody said that they were the hardest fields, that in medical school, you just get taught them in one semester and then you'd like get thrown into like, whoa, all these things. And so um, that was the main reason why I went into it is because I thought it would make dental medical school easier for me um, and ended up staying. So I think everybody feels that it is complicated and it's worth keeping in mind that immunology is a very, very complicated field. Um, Not impossible to learn, but it's hard. So to to go easy on yourselves when you're learning it.
2: Ozzy, you're not going to believe this, but I also had um, an acceptance to dental school and then didn't go.
1: Yeah, I always I I like these like non-traditional routes because, you know, at the time you're like, I was like, oh, I didn't do dentistry. My life is over. Like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. But then you realize that, like, there are lots of different paths that can get you to the same place.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Future is Healthy podcast. If you loved what you heard, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone you know can benefit from any of the info we talked about, share this with friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We don't rely on paid ads so that you can trust we have no conflict of interest in any of the information we provide or talk about in this podcast. If you support what we're doing, you can help us to continue putting out content by clicking the link to support the Future is Healthy podcast. This podcast is for general education purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment, diagnoses, or professional medical advice. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other qualified professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information from this podcast and any of the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. If you are seeking advice for any medical condition, it is important to seek the assistance from a qualified, trained, and licensed medical practitioner.